Our, our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Please rise in body or in spirit as we hear this morning's gospel lesson. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. To be a disciple, you must hate your family and hate your own life. Let that sit. To follow Jesus, you must hate all the things you have come to love. Let those words resonate for a moment. As we hear those words from Jesus, our natural inclination is to cringe. Regardless of how Jesus meant them, the words are entirely heavy. They take us aback. For all of the things that we have heard Jesus say, all, all the things we often say that Jesus taught and says, for all of the things that we teach our children that Jesus says, this one does not seem to fall in line and meet our expectations for the things that Jesus says. But here we are, reflecting upon them. We got ready this morning. Those of you that are gathered here in person have shown up on a holiday weekend, and this is the message that Jesus has for us. My, my, Jesus. Now, before we delve too much into the intricacies and interpretation of this text, and before we expound upon what Jesus might really be saying to us in this moment, we would be remiss, and we would be doing our sanitized ears a disservice if we simply shake it off and say, Jesus did not mean this exactly the way that it sounds. So let us hear again that sentence as it has been translated for us through the years. And may we let it momentarily rest as such. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife 
and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Let us sit in the shock of those words. Our scripture this morning begs the question, what is the cost of discipleship? Now, we are not the first to ask this question, nor will we be the last to ask that question. If you're looking at the text in the Pew Bible, which is the New Revised Standard Version, the title of this passage is, in fact, the cost of discipleship. The phrasing beyond that might sound familiar to you as well. One of the most pop more popular and influential theological books of the 20th century was a book by martyr of the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, entitled The Cost of Discipleship. In line with these, this, the title of this morning's sermon is The Cost of Discipleship. Interestingly enough, as somewhat common as this phrasing might be in Christian vernacular, the Greek word translated cost in verse 28 was a common word in Greek vernacular as well. But this right here is the one place, the only place where it appears in the New Testament. So as it is written, this passage is where scripture might best point us at answering what the cost of discipleship is to be. As many of you know, partially because we post way too much on Facebook and Instagram about it, but Sarah Beth and I have a three-year-old retired racing greyhound named Dansby. Sorry to the dogs that I had growing up that I love. Sorry to Scout, Fauna, and Mercy. But Dansby is the best dog that I have ever had. Dansby is a phenomenal companion. But a few months back, Dansby learned not the cost of discipleship, but she learned the cost of companionship. You see, Dansby, as I'm sure many of your dogs might, has mild separation issues. Nothing drastic, like she doesn't get nervous and chew up things or destroy things or cause issues. I mean, Sarah Beth and I are both here, so Dansby, if you're listening from home, please don't be doing that now just because I've said it. But Dansby always wants us to know that she wants to be wherever we are. If we go anywhere in the house, Dansby will come there too. She will follow us to every room, even if it is a 10 second trip to a closet, she will come to the closet. We have a walk-in, she will follow us into that walk-in closet. From time to time, we will be maybe in the kitchen or somewhere and take a little step back and hear the most horrifying yelp because we have stepped on her paw because we did not realize that she was standing two inches behind us. Unless we go outside with her, she will only stay outside long enough to do her business before immediately beginning to whine and yelp to come back in the house to be where we are as if we have abandoned her there for days. Despite her ability to run around 40 miles per hour, we can let her wander uh, with doors and fences open in the front yard and open fields, basically anywhere, because we know that she is not going anywhere. Because she knows where her people are, where her head gets petted, and most importantly for her, I think, she knows who feeds her. Whenever one of us leaves each day, as soon as we close and lock the door, 
we can look back and see a long dog snoot pulling back the curtain and looking back at us with eyes that say, will you please come back or take me with you? She has grown to realize that whenever someone is packing up a bag of some sort, that they might be leaving soon. And she begins to become visibly worried as to where they might be going and for how long. When you load up the car with anything, she will run out to the car with you to make sure that you do not forget her because she wants to be our companion. She wants to go on every car ride, every trip that we go on. Well, she used to. And then Dansby learned the cost of companionship. A few months back, we were driving back from South Carolina where we were visiting Sarah Beth's family. On that trip, Dansby was permitted to go with us. It also was the case that we had to travel with a full trunk. Things that we had gotten for our newborn nephew, all of these different things, the trunk was full. To get all of the things we needed to travel with, to get all of Dansby's stuff in the car and to get Dansby comfortably in the car, we had to lay down the seats, put Dansby's bed on top of them, and pile everything in what was left of the trunk. That plan would work well. So we thought. On our way home, we ran into a bit of unexpected traffic. I was in the passenger seat and Sarah Beth was taking a turn driving when we were forced to make an abrupt stop. As we were braking harder than we normally would, the pile of things that were up in the trunk made their fall forward towards Dansby and Dansby's bed. Before I knew it, the fully ground greyhound, who is about as tall as Sarah Beth is when standing on two legs, proceeds to leap from the back of the car into my lap, a moment where I came to learn that it had been a while since we had cut her nails. As I look back and see all of the remnants in the, in the back seat and trunk, now laying on Dansby's bed, and Dansby is in my lap, shaking, panting, and shedding all of the limited hair that she has. From that point onward, in the drive, there was no getting Dansby back to where she was. No, Dansby was going to find her comfort and security in the lap of the passenger seat, as if she was a lap dog or a cat. A delightful couple hours of a ride home for me. Dansby is still the best companion, but Dansby doesn't follow us to the car anymore. If we open the car door, Dansby doesn't try to sneak in the car as she used to. If Dansby has to get somewhere now, you're going to have to force her to get into the car. That car ride taught her that sometimes companionship has its cost. And if that cost is a car ride, then she is content not being a companion that day and staying at home on her couch where there is no tumbling luggage. Where she used to blindly and recklessly be a companion, she now sits down and considers the cost. As for the cost of discipleship, Jesus offers them the words from this passage where there are three statements of potential conditions with two short parables sandwiched in between them. The passage starts by telling us that as Jesus goes, there is a large crowd traveling with him. 
At this point, Jesus' words and actions and miracles are drumming up some interest. In this case, it does not seem to be negative interest, as might have been the case with the Pharisees. But here, it seems to be a group of people at least somewhat enamored by Jesus. They are somewhat enthusiastic, at least in the moment. In terms of the football season having started this past week, Jesus has picked up a bit of a bandwagon fan base. By where the passage then goes, it's evident that Jesus questions the level of commitment that many among this bandwagon have. As we are caught off guard by the statements and questions that Jesus offers them, I imagine the bandwagon would have been quite startled as well. If you in this crowd want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to hate your family. As we ponder the text, sit in the shock of it, and sit in the seeming absurdity of it, we wonder, does Jesus really want us to actively despise our families and ourselves? In terms of our English word, hate, does Jesus, the Prince of Peace, God who is love incarnate, actually wish for us to want ill for our families? The answer to that question is no. Most biblical scholars are clear that this is a hyperbole that Jesus is using. The late Emory preaching professor Fred Craddock says in his interpretation of this text, there is nothing here of that emotion we experience in the expression, I hate you. But this is a Semitic hyperbole utilizing a word meaning to turn away from or to detach oneself from to turn away from family, to detach from them. Is Jesus telling us that we are to act the opposite of love toward the ones that we inherently love? No, but we also should not forget, ignore, or shrug off the jarring feeling that we had when we heard that discipleship meant hate of your family. The scripture did still tell us that discipleship means we must be willing to follow Jesus even if following Jesus requires turning away from the people that we love. Even that is a cost oh so high. As if that cost weren't high enough, Jesus goes on to say immediately after that that not only do his disciples have to be willing to turn away from the people that they love in full commitment to this movement, but they also must be willing to carry their own cross as well. Now we have the fortune of reading this story from the lens of knowing how it turned out. We know that Jesus was crucified on a cross, the most embarrassing and public form of capital punishment of the age. We also know that three days after that, he conquered death and resurrected and invites us into that same resurrection and salvation. The cross and resurrection for us is a promise of freedom in life, freedom in death, and freedom in life after death. On the other hand, the large crowd following him the day that he spoke these words does not have the knowledge that we have of how this would play out. 
For them, this verse, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, can be seen only through the lens of what they know of what happens at crosses. Jesus is telling them that to follow him, as this large crowd is doing on that day, they must be willing to walk to their death. Not an easy death, but a brutal one. Where we were shocked by the idea of hating our family, the idea of doing that, then walking to your own death, only multiplies the sacrificial expense of the cost of discipleship. This morning's scripture concludes, So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. If discipleship calls, you must be willing to turn away from your loved ones, turn away from your things, and even die to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This passage started with a large crowd. I really wonder what the crowd turned into at the end of the passage. Was there anyone left? What did this enthusiastic bandwagon bunch of people excited about healing stories and commandments to love think about being told they must be willing to leave their family, abandon their things, and even be a martyr? The cost of discipleship can be boiled down to this. At any situation this life offers us, whether it is our loved ones, our prized possessions, or even our lives itself, when presented between these things and the selfless love of the way, the truth, and the life are always to choose the path of Christ. I think we all would admit that living in a time and place where Christianity does not face violent persecution might lead us to take some of the cost of discipleship for granted. But we can look to the heroes and models of the faith throughout the history of it, for evidence of what it means to choose Christ above all else. Around our chancel are 12 disciples. For 11 of those 12 disciples represented around the chancel, following Jesus meant death. They were killed. The only one that was not killed, John son of Zebedee, the one in the back left back here, well, he died in exile after having been turned away from his family and all that he had. Many saints of the church, some more ancient and some more modern, carried the cross of discipleship to their death as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote that book, The Cost of Discipleship, ironically, was executed for being a pastor that stood up against the horrors of Nazi Germany. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. found discipleship in advocating for the reality that loving thy neighbor is not exclusive to the color of one's skin. He was killed in Memphis, but not before his home was bombed, his family threatened, and him unjustly arrested many times. That did not stop him from his call to discipleship. In places even today where Christianity is not legal, Underground churches meet with the reality that they might pay that final cost of death. Many of them have to turn away from their families to keep them safe. I cannot know, but 
I, I don't expect anyone here to have their Christian faith cause their life to be threatened. We are still offered a definite and challenging call in this text, though. The cost of discipleship leads each of us to remember that following Christ comes ahead of all other priorities that we might have. With knowing what the cost of discipleship is, the two parables found in the story offer us guidance on how we are to assess what that cost means for our lives. The one man decides to build a tower and starts it without first sitting down, estimating the cost, and planning it. He is found to be foolish because he ran out of what he needed to build it. Had he assessed it from the beginning, he would have known that he was not going to be able to fulfill his expectations. He did not adequately assess his cost of towership, and he fell short. In the other parable, we are to expect the king does sit down and plan and finds that he does not have the capabilities to accomplish the task that he has in mind. In sitting down, he adequately assessed that the cost of his violent venture might be too much. So here we are. We know that the cost of discipleship means prioritizing Christ over all possessions, over all relationships, and over our own selves. Now perhaps it is time we all sit down as the tower builder should have and assess the cost. We are capable of living into the cost of discipleship, but have we sat down and assessed if we are living into it? It's not that we won't make mistakes, but we can make steps each and every day that lead us on toward perfection. We can turn ourselves ever more slightly each day away from the things of this world and towards God, who we find is continuously there offering us grace through Jesus Christ. As we move further and further into this year, may we all take time this week to sit down and consider the cost of discipleship and find the ways in which we can let go of this world and follow Christ. May we ready ourselves for the potential extreme costs of discipleship that we may not fall short in building the tower. May we find where we might open our busy schedules more to what Christ is calling us to do. And may we find that when we prioritize God's work in this world, that we find that God is in fact all that we need. To the glory of God. Amen.